We've been going through the book of Mark for the past few weeks, and we've talked about Mark. It's, it's the most brief of all of the Gospels. It is uh, 678 verses. It is 16 chapters long. Some believe it to be the very first Gospel, and we've talked about it being the man's Gospel. There's not a lot of great, great description. It's just the facts, and we're going through this, walking through it piece by piece, section by section. And today we're going to be encountering uh, some episodes within Jesus' life as he is dealing with legalists. Now, undoubtedly, if you've been in church for any period of time, you're familiar with the term legalism. And it's usually not a good encounter. If we've encountered the term, we've usually encountered the people. And legalism, it's, it's very difficult to describe. It has a lot of nuances to it, but it's basically those who look to follow the rules to be justified in the face of God. And I don't don't know about you, if you've ever dealt with it or struggled with it, I have in my own life. I remember when I first came to know Christ, I was passionate. I'm a zealous guy. And when I I came to Christ, I came full bore, and I I was like a, a bit like a bull in a china shop. I mean, I wanted to follow Jesus no holds barred. And I, I looked and gravitated toward people that had a same or similar zeal to my own. So I, I remember interacting with a, a, a group of people who I considered, I thought they were really godly. They looked different. They sounded different. They, had, they were very, uh, very emotional or emotive within worship. And, and uh, the people that I had grown up with had not been so emotional or outward in their expressions of worship. And I, I'm an outward guy, so I was looking for that. And the more that I interacted with them, the, more, the closer that I got with them, the more guilty that I felt. Uh, it was a very strange thing that was going on. I was, I was told that uh, women couldn't wear makeup. I was told that, uh, that they couldn't wear pants, and, and they had to dress a certain way, and that I had to dress a certain way, and I had to get rid of all of these things in my life. And, and I started just to to be, feel guilty all the time and all the stuff that I was struggling with. And the more that I interacted with them, I just felt it just piling on me. And the more that I started reading the Word of God, I couldn't find these things that they were talking about or if they did, it just didn't seem right. It was like it was out of context. And, and the more that I started to really struggle and get depressed and more depressed. And it wasn't until God revealed to me the spiritual reality of the term grace what grace is. And then I started being able, I I started to see that these individuals didn't have joy in their lives. They were always following rules to be righteous. There wasn't an understanding of relationship. It was religion, not a relationship with Jesus. And I started to look and balance my life. And undoubtedly, We've all encountered that. Have you ever encountered legalism in your life? Just put your hand up right now if you have. Maybe, maybe you're a legalist. <laughs> you know, legalism is a very difficult thing because it, it's very hard to identify because it can mask itself as godliness. Because it looks pious on the outside. It's not until we get into the heartbeat of it and we can see for what it really is that it's just pride masked with spirituality. That's all it is. In its essence, Jesus had no patience for legalists. Those who added to their 
to the, the truth of God's word, the commandments of God with rules of their own. He had no patience whatsoever. As a matter of fact, he reserves his most fierce denunciations for those who did exactly that. And he had no patience whatsoever. So today, we're going to see how we can leave legalism behind. Because undoubtedly, especially those that come from conservative Bible churches, legalism is there. More found, I'd say, within Bible churches and, and Baptist churches and, and some of the very conservative churches. And not that, not that we, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because usually, it's a desire to maintain spiritual truth. And the purity of God's word starts off as a good thing. But then it becomes the following the parameter around that truth as a means of justification before God. And we're going to see today, through these episodes within Jesus' life, how we can leave legalism behind. So I'd ask you to turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 2. We're going to be reading a very extended section. And uh, trying, we won't be able to hit all of the details involved within this passage But I'll try to give you the best highlights. Mark chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 13 all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. It's our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, just listen in as best as you possibly can. The book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 13. The Holy Spirit says through John Mark, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the fields, and as They made their way. His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. 
And he looked around at them in ang- with anger, grieved at, the har- at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and, and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence now, asking that you give us clarity on how to look within your word. Lord, peel back the layers of unbelief and sin. Lord, help us to see who you are and how we might leave legalism behind. Convict us, use us, transform us, and help us to be more like you, that your name might receive glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Legalism, as I just mentioned, is notoriously hard to define. And in researching this message, I encountered a lot of different definitions that I'd like to share with you today. Chuck Swindoll, the pastor, uh, kind of the famous radio TV or radio preacher, defined it as this, an attitude, a mentality based on pride. It is an obsessive conformity to an artificial standard for the purpose of exalting oneself. A legalist assumes the place of authority and pushes it to unwarranted extremes. In an interview with Howard Hendricks, Chuck Swindoll described legalism, the problem is this, when we get into areas that are not set forth in Scripture, either in precept or even in principle. These may be such things as length of hair, tattoos and other body piercings, skirts or pants for women, makeup or no makeup. Those are not scriptural issues. Sometimes these issues are cultural, and you do have to address them when you're in that particular culture. But I think legalism begins when you do or refrain from doing what I want you to do or not do because it's on my list and it's something that I am uncomfortable with. Perhaps Tim Keller's description, which is very brief, gives a a better inclination as to what it means. He defines religion. uh, He sees religion and um, legalism very as synonyms of one another. And religion says, this is what Keller says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Big difference. Today we're going to see both of these present within our passage. And I'd like us to start off looking at verse 13. Jesus starts off again beside the sea, Sea of Galilee, and all the crowd was coming to him. People had heard about his miracles. They'd experienced who he was and heard his teaching. And he was teaching them, as was his custom. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, it's pretty amazing that he calls Levi. We understand that this is also Matthew. Um, And Matthew, the reason we know it's Matthew is that Matthew records the same story and gives us the name Matthew rather than Levi. The reason for the difference is that Matthew is the Greek name while Levi is the Hebrew name. And as a tax collector, Matthew worked for the Greek-speaking Romans and he gathered taxes from the Hebrew-speaking Jews. It's a pretty remarkable thing that Jesus is talking to this guy who Jews hated because he was one of their own people and he was extracting money for the occupying nation, which which were the Romans. The Romans hated him because he was Jewish. And yet the Jews hated him because he was working for their enemies. And undoubtedly, Levi was intimately familiar with Jesus' ministry. He wanted new life. He was a societal outcast. And Jesus called to him, gave him a new lease on life. Now, in verse 15, we see Jesus reclining at table in his house. This is probably Matthew's house. 
or Levi's house. And it appears that it's a going away party because he's leaving all that lifestyle behind and he's getting ready to follow Jesus. So all of his friends have gathered together and Jesus is reclining with them. Now we have to get an understanding of what it means to eat with someone in the ancient world. To eat with someone showed mutual acceptance. It was an intimate thing to do. It was, show, it was showing a camaraderie, a great friendship. It had a great deal of meaning. That's why Paul, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, chastises the church who are relating to those who are willingly and habitually indulging in sexual immorality. And he says, don't even eat with such a one. Because, in essence, they weren't living according to the truth of God's word, and they didn't care. They weren't repentant. They didn't care at all. They were flagrant about it. And he says, don't even eat with them anymore. Because that's showing mutual acceptance. Now, Jesus is dealing with people that aren't yet following him. And he is loving them. He is, he is sitting down, reclining with them. Now, reclining, the position of reclining was, in essence, leaning on one side. It was a symbol of freedom. We see that if you've ever been to a, a Passover Seder, you're supposed to be leaning. And it's supposed to be done in a reclining position, denoting one's freedom to participate within it. Within it. So Jesus is reclining and he is eating with these individuals. And then the Pharisees, who are the who's who among the religious elite, kind of like seminary professors in essence, these are the guys that know it all, have got all the the initials behind their name and the titles in front of their name, and they're coming along and they're looking at Jesus going, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They couldn't believe it. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. It was scandalous in their mind. Doesn't he know who they are? But Jesus does know who they are and challenges the Pharisees in their view. He says those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, if we are ever to leave legalism behind or rid the pathway to God of legalism, we must first of all uh, understand, or secondly, understand the uh, places where legalism is found. First of all, the problem of legalism, which we've already talked about. Secondly, understand the places where legalism is found. We've identified the problem with legalism today, and now we're understanding the places where legalism is found. And in today's passage, we have a small list at legalism where legalism is going on. Now, any one of us could deal with legalism at any point in time in our Christian walk, if we're not careful. It's like watch, walking a tightrope. A tightrope, as we're walking with the Lord, we can either fall off into the cavern of legalism to the right side, or we could fall off to the cavern of license on the other. It's a constant balance. Usually, if we're holding on to the Word of God, we're going to fall off on legalism. The other side is called libertinism or antinomianism, when those who just continue on as if it doesn't matter what their behavior does or what it means or what they're doing. But here are some of the places where legalism may be found, and we can see this in our passage today. It includes our engaging with sinners. See, Jesus wants to engage the lost, and it can be a very difficult thing to do. And we hear verses like, in our mind, abstain from every form of evil. So we stay away from other people that could be contaminate us in some ways. As if they have some type of disease, and the CDC says we can't be around them. And we do this all the time. We don't want to be around those people. And we label them. And then what we do is we get into a bunker mentality where we surround ourselves with everybody that looks and sounds just like us. 
And they have to conform to our set of rules, how we do things. And Jesus rids that and he says, no, 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 you're to be engaging. You're to be a light to people in a dark world. Now, the question might become, though, is how do I abstain from every form of evil when they're doing something that's evil? Or what if it makes me stumble? Or my behavior could make someone else stumble. And Paul talks about that. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So we have this idea we don't want to do anything that's going to engage and cause our brother to stumble. And we, don't, we want to avoid every appearance of evil. So then what do we do? How do we engage that? And I know it sounds a bit cliche, but what would Jesus and what did Jesus do? I mean, we're going to be accused of different things, as Jesus was. But we continue on understanding that God's mission is to reach the lost. Now, let me put a caveat on that. That if you notice, as you're engaging with those who are considered to be sinners, and their behavior is starting to affect your own, that's when you need to step back. It's a good rule of thumb. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. He says, bad company. And he says, actually, he, he uh, gives it right before that. He, he leads in and he says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So if you notice that you're engaging with sinners and their behavior is starting to affect your own, that's when you need to remove yourself for a period of time. That's when you have to ask yourself the question, am I being a thermometer or a thermostat? See, when we engage with sinners, we're to be thermostats. We're to help set the temperature. But if we notice that we're becoming thermometers and not thermostats, that's when we need to step away. But we need to be very careful in how we engage with sinners. And we should be. We should be in our workplaces, in our families, with with our friends, with our acquaintances, with those whom we meet in everyday life. Those specific individuals, we need to make sure that we are being a light Two, it's hard to do. It's not easy. It can be very difficult. So we have to make sure that we are being on guard to make sure that we're not being led into sin, but yet continually engaging with them. And that's what Jesus was doing. And the Pharisees couldn't take it. We can also see the problem of legalism in regards to the exercising of spiritual disciplines. Now, spiritual disciplines, for those who have been around church for any period of time, you know these are the means by which we become more like Christ. It's through reading the Bible, it's through prayer, it's through things like fasting, through church attendance, it's through all of these different avenues, and they are good things. These are things we should be doing. But, like everything, Satan likes to take the good things and make them bad things. And place an overemphasis to distort it. Remember, he's a deceiver. And he knows the word better than probably all of us. Because he, I mean, he, remember, even during Jesus' time in the wilderness, Satan quotes the Bible to Jesus. You've got to have some type of guts to quote the Bible to its author. And if you think he's going to do that to Jesus, he's going to do that to us. So we have to be very careful in what we do and how we practice, even in our spiritual disciplines. If we notice that they become the means by which we have right standing with God, then we have to, we have to step back and reassess. Because, see, these individuals come to Jesus and they said, John and his disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus being the bridegroom. It's a celebration. He's here. The Son of Man is here. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated in Him. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus is saying here, they should be fasting. Now, I'm talking now about the danger of continually to do it all the time and making it a law, but we also have to make sure that we're actually doing it. Many of us don't do it. Fasting is always optional. But Jesus said, and then they will fast in that day. Fasting is a means of drawing close to God, where we show that we are upheld by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and not of ourselves. When we continue to deny ourselves food for any period of time or any other uh, thing that we consider near and dear to our hearts, you'll start to notice a change happening in your life, or we will start to notice a change. I notice in my own life, when fasting comes, certain anger comes out that food masks. Certain behaviors that I have kept in check through just eating and drinking, and then they're not allowed to be covered over anymore, and then I have to deal with them with the Lord in the right manner. So there should be fasting, but we must make sure that we don't make a law about it. Jesus says in verse 21, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now this word for tear here is schisma, which means division, tear. A wedding requires good clothing and ample wine, so this section would flow naturally for Jesus' hearers. Cups and jars were made of pottery and metal, and another more portable kind of vessel was made of leather, typically from a single goatskin. New wine was put into such a bottle that would ferment, and which would allow it to expand with it. A new bottle would be strong and could stretch without breaking under the pressure of the gases produced by fermentation. But an old one might burst because it would dry out and you'd put new wine into it. And as it would ferment, it couldn't handle it and it would expand and bust. Now, Donald English in his commentary on Mark says this, The double parable of the patch and the wineskins now broadens out the issue. There is a glad freedom about belonging to the kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus. The old way is simply not able to take it as an adjunct or a new element. The new patch tears the old garment and the new wine bursts the old wineskins. Jesus is not saying that the old should, not, should be discarded. He is affirming that what has now come far surpasses all that went before. The old should not hold back the new, however, by making it conform to its shape. In other words, the New Testament or the kingdom of God is far different from that which was seen in the old. We can make laws and rules out of everything and anything and everything, and that is especially true in our spiritual disciplines. Here we see it with fasting, but we can do it with anything, like having a quiet time. We can run ourselves ragged trying to keep on our devotions. Yes, we're to take our cross and carry it daily, but nowhere else are we called to sit down every day in a certain setting to read such and such a passage. I see many Christians burdened by this. Now, this is not to go the other way, which is libertinism or antinomianism, which says I never have to do it, or you're not doing it, you're reading your Bible, because reading the Word of God helps us understand the thoughts of God, and it helps us change our character to be more like God's. So we are to be within the Word, and preferably on a very frequent basis. But don't get so legalistic about it that if you don't hit it, your whole day is shot. So we have to make sure that we are understanding the concept of grace. 
There are others out there who say we don't have to do anything to cultivate our spiritual life, but that is just as bad as those who say you have to have a 30-minute quiet time every morning at 5.30. For years, I've seen Christians driven like this. They're always rule and guilt-driven. I remember reading of an old saint who woke up at 3.45 a.m. and heard a blacksmith hammering away years ago. He started to weep and confess to the Lord how sorry he was that this man was up serving his sinful master at that hour while this saint was sleeping. He vowed to be better and more devoted than that man. I remember even using that story as a young pastor myself as a means of showing godliness when I first started preaching. But now I hate that story. Why? Because it is glorifying legalism. He's being guilt-driven by what someone else is doing. Not grace. Not grace. He was driven by rules and guided by guilt, not by grace. See, as I mentioned before, walking with with Jesus is a bit like walking a tightrope. You have legalism on one side and libertinism or liberalism or license or antinomianism on the other. And we can easily fall off one way or the other. The only thing that can balance us, remember you ever seen a tightrope walker? What are they holding? A big pole. That's grace. Grace is what balances us to walk with Jesus. It keeps us from falling off one way or the other. See, to the antinomians, Paul would say, uh, and people even said he, he, as he, they would supposedly say, and he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have been freed from sin continue in sin any longer? He's saying, no, 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 grace balances me. But yet, don't be legalistic and go off the other way. Hold grace in balance, and you'll be able to walk securely. Grace is what helps us. See, another area that legalism has been known to be seen is elevating the Sabbath. Elevating the Sabbath. In verses 23 up through 3.6, we see two episodes talking about the Sabbath day. And in the first situation, we have Jesus' disciples plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Now, Doug Goyne, who's a pastor, in his message on this passage says this, the disciples plucking heads of grain, rolling them between their hands to get rid of the husk, and eating the grain was considered to be work. Can you believe that? This was considered to be work in the ancient world. It violated the Sabbath rest, according to religious rules, actually. He says, I have a copy of the book called the Mishnah, which is a compilation of interpretation of and commentary on the Old Testament written by many different rabbis, scribes, and Pharisees between about 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. There are 36 pages on keeping the Sabbath. 36 pages. Here is one short paragraph entitled, The Main Classes of Work Forbidden on the Sabbath. This is what's forbidden on the Sabbath, according to the Mishnah. The main classes of work are 40 save one. So 39 classes. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, sharing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing it in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer and taking out aught from one domain into another, carrying something, say, from inside your house to outside. That's nuts. Each of these 39 classes of work has a section where it is expanded and explained point by point. According to the rabbis, Jesus and his disciples are guilty of at least four of these 39 classes of work. 
reaping, threshing, winnowing, and food preparation. None of this rabbinical commentary has any biblical authority. It is human tradition that was carefully worked out over centuries, piously, prayerfully, probably with pure hearts and very sincere motives. The rationale for a book like this was probably to protect the law and control irreligious behavior on the part of people who are trying to keep the law. Having these rules meant that they, they wouldn't have to think about it. Legalism always seeing itself as protecting and defending. The problem is, is that it's extra biblical. Talk about rules. Jesus' disciples were hungry and needed food and just started eating them. Jesus was showing here that he is Lord on the Sabbath day, and the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In the second, second episode, we read of a man with a shriveled hand. The words used to describe the condition of this man, or the word for shriveled or withered, is to dry out, become dry, and it was completely withered. The perfect tense points to a withered state and may show that it was not from birth, but was a result of injury by accident or disease. But as Jesus is getting ready to heal this man, the legalists were watching him, waiting for him to screw up. The word in verse 2 actually is this. It says that they, they were looking at him, observing. It means to observe from the side, to observe minutely, going along as if it were the object for the purpose of watching its movements. It was used for keeping a watchful eyes on criminals. That's the word that's being used here to make sure that it's like looking out for a bowl lest it be stolen. So they're just waiting to see if Jesus would heal because that's what legalists do. They're waiting for you to mess up so they can come by and thump you. Remember we've talked about Bible thumping? Remember that? It's like Chuck E. Cheese when you have the whack-a-mole. This is what people do just waiting for you to sin. They whack, whack, whack. And they say, you need to get more in line with the word of God, brother. Whack! We have to be very careful. Yes, the, the word of God is, is useful and for, uh, for profitable, for preaching, teaching, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is to show us our sin, but it's not to be beaten over people's heads. It is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, but we need to learn how to wield the sword correctly, like a surgeon's scalpel, not a butcher's knife. Precision. Precision. So we see Jesus, they're watching him. They don't care about healing, which is amazing to me. That they're waiting to see if he violates the Sabbath by healing a guy. Nobody else has ever been healed. They don't care about that. And seeing a miracle in their midst, in their mind, it's unacceptable because he's violating the rules that we've set up. So much for grace. Jesus says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They can't even respond to his question. They're so filled with hate. He was showing them the intent of the law, but they couldn't see it. He gets angry at their hardness of heart and then tells the man to stretch out his hand, which he does, and it's completely restored. And they are angry. And it says at that moment in time, the Pharisees and Herodians immediately go out. Now, the Pharisees were a religious group. The Herodians were a political group. They weren't really friends. They were fans of King Herod, big fans of the Roman occupation, and yet they see Jesus as a threat to their way of life. The Pharisees see Jesus as a threat to their way of life. So the two are willing to join together to get rid of Jesus. Because that's what legalists do. 
See, Jesus was a threat to their way of life. Legalism uses guilt, not grace, as a motivating principle. And legalism uses rules in order to be righteous. Jesus came to correct all of that. He came to show us how we might pursue the path of victory in Christ. This is what I really want you to pay attention to. How we can pursue the path of victory in Christ and not be legalists. And here's how, right here, I've got, I think I've got six of these. The first one is this, preaching heart change, not conformity. Don't look at the outward behavior because God looks at the heart. Now, out of the heart overflow all kinds of things, evil and what have you. So we have to be very, I mean, and yes, by their fruits we shall know them, but we don't try to regulate their outward, outward behavior if you don't have their heart. Preach heart change. That's what Jesus did. He always goes to the heart. He's always focusing on the heart. Legalists are always looking at conformity. Conform to our standards. Look just like us. But that's not what Jesus does. He comes along preaching heart change. We're not, our job is not supposed to regulate someone's behavior. It's not to get them to stop their sinful behavior, but get them to come to Jesus, and Jesus will take care of that. We're to introduce them to the Savior. Many of us get this backwards. We want conformity, not heart change. We don't know how to get heart change, so we focus on what is outward and easy to identify. The heart is deceptive, and we must make every effort to get their heart. And that does not come from getting people to follow our standards of life. One pastor says this about legalists. He says, legalists love to act like God by making rules. He wants the conformity. Legalists love rules about the rules. Legalists love rules about who gets to make the rules about the rules. Legalists love rules about who gets to enforce the rules made by the people whom the rules appointed to make the rules about the rules. Legalists really love rules about who gets to interpret the rules, that rule, and legalists get perfectly euphoric when they get to enact the rules by punishing people who break the rules as interpreted by those who appointed the rules. In the end, legalists want to rule through rules and wield the rules like weapons to divide the church body into bloody parts. Wow. It's all about the rules. So to avoid legalism, we must make sure that we're being holy, not hypocritical. See, the the Pharisees and the Herodians... Rather than carry about the man who had just been healed, they go out and plot on how they might kill Jesus. See, that's what legalism does. It looks at the outward behavior, but yet inside it nourishes things that are far worse. So we must make sure that we're not being hypocritical, but being holy. Not holier than thou. Holy. Living according to what God has set forth within his word, but always relying and coming back to grace. For it is by grace we have been saved, not by works, not by our rules, but it is by grace. We must make sure that we are being hypocritical, being holy, not hypocritical. Another way that we can leave legalism behind is making sure that we are reaching out, not regulating righteousness. Reaching out. See, Jesus was great in that he reached out to everybody. He loved IRS agents, the immoral, and the ignored. He fellowshiped with political zealots, the pious, the poor, and the prodigal. The bold, the braggarts, the brash, the bleeding, the blind, and the barren. He ministered to the deaf, the diseased, the demon-possessed, the doubting, and the determined. He loved the convict next to him on the cross for crying out loud. Even in death, he was reaching out. One pastor wrote that legalism threatens the church's ability to reach the lost. He says this, Legalism is too often in the conservative church in its effort to keep itself and its children away from the corrupting influence of sin has simply removed itself from sinners. It has ostracized those who do not agree to abide by extra biblical rules and it has used those rules as a litmus test for true faith. 
As a result, many churches have lost their opportunity to be a prophetic voice in the sinful world. They rarely engage the culture, and when they do, it's only to scream slogans at those with whom they disagree. He goes on to say, legalism is nothing less than an attempt to define holiness as we see it rather than as God sees it. As a result, it's a threat to the gospel, and it destroys the church's ability to fulfill its God-given mission by hiding its light under a bushel. Instead, we must renew our faith so that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is given the opportunity to transform even the worst sinner, which means actively pursuing just those kinds of people. Legalists aren't idiots, though. They're responding to a real problem, the corrupting influences of the world. So what should churches do? Rather than building walls around ourselves, we must stick close to Jesus, who is not corrupted by involvement with sinners. Legalism does not actually keep anyone from sin, he points out, but rather only serves to rearrange the flesh and get people to stop drinking, smoking, and having sex, only to start being proud of their morality. Another way we can leave legalism behind is to make sure that we are speaking intelligently, not ignorantly. See, these guys, Jesus actually quotes to them, and you can almost see the sarcasm or just sense it in his words when he says, have you not read? Have you not read? Come on, guys, you guys are the experts, is what he's saying to them. In the Bible, and yet you don't know this? You're speaking ignorantly. And so often within the churches of God, we speak ignorantly, not intelligently. And we sound like idiots. And yet, we hide behind, behind this guise of cliche, which is, God said it, I believe it, that's the end of it. Sounds great, but it's still not answering the person's question of why. Not, and, and if it's true faith-seeking understanding, mind you, some people just come up with excuses, and that's where we have to be sure we back away from the conversation. But if a person's really genuinely wanting to understand, then feel free to engage it. Why they understand. Why do you believe the Bible to be true? Don't just throw cliches at them. I was talking to someone who said I, they were witnessing to someone online, and they said, uh, they said I'm, I'm throwing verses at them, and they're getting all riled up. Satan's at work. I'm like, I'm not sure if Satan's at work. The fact that she's asking questions that you're refusing to answer. You're hiding behind it. You're not engaging the person where they're at. See, we've seen this many times within Scripture. Probably one of the biggest times happened in the year 1616. After several years of debate, the astronomer Galileo Galileo was condemned for holding the view that the sun was the center of the universe. At that time, the most popular and prevailing view was that the earth was the center of the universe with the sun circling around it. It was based on Psalm 9610. Most people don't, believe, don't recall that there was a Bible verse behind this. That was, it was twice, and here's the verse. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It's, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So in their mind, the sun went around us, because the earth shall never be moved. See, they misunderstood it. They weren't speaking intelligently, but ignorantly. That's why we have to understand we have to use a, a surgeon's scalpel as we study the Word, and then learn how to apply it to our lives. It doesn't take a genius to see that those who looked at the Bible that way were wrong. We must make sure that we are speaking intelligently about the issues we are facing and what the Bible says about it. Don't make stuff up. Don't force your opinion without listening to what others say. Don't just cut them off. Be willing to dialogue. Notice I said dialogue. Dialogue doesn't mean compromising. It means understanding. If you want to be understood, make sure you understand. The principle has helped me whenever I'm talking about issues as politics, 
economics, poverty, science, sexuality, and a host of other issues. And don't hide behind cliches. We need to make sure that we are engaging people where they're at, answering their questions, and be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. See, the Pharisees were speaking completely ignorantly, not following what the Word of God was saying, and Jesus corrects them on that. Also, we need to make sure that we're standing strong, not settling stumbling blocks for others. Remember, the Pharisees were just looking, waiting for Jesus to mess up, but Jesus stands strong in the midst of their legalism, and so must we. Chuck Swindoll, in an interview done about five years ago, gave some blunt advice. He said this, The problem with legalism, legalists is not that enough people... Ha- is that not enough people have confronted them and told them to get lost. Those are strong words, but I don't mess with legalism anymore. He said, I'm 72 years old. What have I got to lose? Seriously. I used to kowtow to legalists, but they're dangerous. They're grace killers. They'll drive off every new Christian you bring to church. They're enemies of the faith. Other than that, I don't have any opinion. So if I am trying to force my personal list of no-nos on you and make you feel guilty if you don't join me, then I'm out of line and I need to be told that. Your own personal list of no-nos. Leaving legalism also involves teaching the truth, not personal tastes. This is a hard one. What are some of your personal tastes? They might be convictions for you. That's fine. We can have convictions. I don't want to remove convictions, but don't make your convictions a commandment to others. Let your convictions be your convictions. You can voice your conviction, but don't force them on others and put them in the criteria that they have to fulfill and follow your conviction that you've made a commandment. I mean, we can have our own personal taste on many different things. It can be our own political party. and may, may be what type of schooling we do. What radio stations we listen to. I've seen some, and I have to say that I respect those. Uh, some people who do this with schooling, um, they can make it that if you don't do schooling our way, then you're not in the will of God. That's wrong. And that can be applied in anything in our life. We must make sure that we're teaching the truth of Christ, not our own personal taste. We must make sure that people see Jesus, not the slogans on our t-shirt, not what's on our bumper sticker, how we have, often have our devotions or anything like that. We must make sure that we are teaching the truth of who Jesus Christ is, not any of that other stuff. The only thing that will change a person is not going to be the slogan on your t-shirt. It's going to be the truth of the living Christ. See, studying for this message, one pastor wrote how you can become a legalist. There's seven of them. You don't have to, to, they're not on the screen, but you can write them down if you want. Here's seven ways that you can become a legalist. Number one, make rules outside the Bible. Number two, push yourself to try and keep your rules. Number three, castigate yourself when you don't keep your rules. Number four, become proud when you do keep your rules. Number five, appoint yourself as judge over other people. Number six, get angry with people who break your rules or have different rules. And number seven, beat the losers. Seven ways that you can become a legalist. Don't go beyond what is written. Now, as I wrap this up, I want you to notice something in your notes. In uh, point number three, the last point, notice there are all the subpoints. There are two words for each point. Go back and look at them. There's two words, change and conformity in, the, in the, the first point underneath number three. Holy and hypocritical, reaching out and regulating, intelligently and ignorantly, standing and stumbling, truth and tastes. If you were to line each letter up, there is a word that's spelled twice. What is it? Christ. Matter of fact, I've presented to you two Christs. One Christ is the legalistic Christ, 
And the other Christ is the true Christ of the Bible. Many of us, though, instead of presenting the true Christ of the Bible, have presented an alternative Christ that turns people away from the Savior. The other day I was talking to a young man, uh, actually talking to a guy who has a, he's a Christian, has his own, has his own business. And he said uh, he had these two guys working with him, and he's been witnessing to one of them um, who's not a Christian. The other young man is a Christian, and he's very zealous, almost too zealous. And he's, he's legalistic in sharing his faith and in this guy's faith, not to say that we shouldn't be bold. But this, this guy has taken a very long approach in witnessing to this young man. He's been doing it over years. They work together a, on, a, on a daily basis. He's continually witnessing to this young man and showing him who Jesus is. This young man's had a very abusive background and past. And here's this other young guy who just starts working there, gets right in this guy's face, and doesn't have any idea of the conversation that's already ensued. And he starts just badgering this guy, and he's getting irritated. And the young man starts saying, I want my boss's Jesus, not your Jesus. And he says, your Jesus sucks. He says, that. And the guy's like, we worship the same Jesus. He's like, no, you don't. His Jesus is different than yours. Now, see, the reality is, if you're a legalist, you're presenting people with a totally different Jesus. It's not the God of the Bible, and it's not the Jesus of the New Testament. We got to make sure that we're presenting not Jesus as we want him to be, but as he is. And he's the Jesus who gives grace. And you know what? Grace, as one theologian told me, is dangerous. We don't live in grace, we live by rules. And we want other people to enforce and be a part of our rules. And that is not the way of redemption. Jesus sets us free from all of that. Read the book of Galatians. We have a really poor understanding of what it means to be justified by faith. We don't understand it. We try to make everybody look just like us. And it's sinful. My brothers and sisters, I don't know how else to put it. We could be turning people away from the Savior with our well-intentioned ideas and rules rather than turning him to the Savior of the world. And any of us could do this. I can do this. I've done this in my own life, and I'm ashamed to admit it. And I'm constantly evaluating my life, saying, am I doing it now? Am I going off the other side and becoming a libertine? I don't want to be a libertine or a legalist. I want to follow and present the grace of God that has been offered to us supremely through Jesus Christ. So other people might partake and trust in Christ alone for salvation. So here's the last question to consider as we wrap up our time today. While we have two Christs, they spell the same thing. One leads people to the Savior, and the other one drives them away. Which Christ are you presenting? Which Christ are we presenting as a body? When people come into contact with us, what would they say about Jesus? Do they see Jesus in us? Or do they see the Pharisees? question for each one of us to ask ourselves are we being legalists are we using our rules as a means of righteousness are we trying to regulate others righteousness are we ready to introduce people to the savior who died for us all if you're here today and you maybe don't even understand this you may say i don't understand legalism but i understand rules perhaps you've been trying to keep rules in order to get to the savior you can't 
Jesus paid the price for you. There's nothing that you can do to get to God except believe in what he's already done. That's all that we can do is trust in the risen Christ. Repent of our sins, believe in him, and he will save us. And if you're a recovering legalist, you want to leave legalists behind, confess your sin to God, identify it for what it is, and ask him to direct your life and reveal the legalism and the rules that you have built up that have kept other people from seeing the Savior in your life. And he will do it. Let's pray.